0: Marissa Lee here, and I'm so excited to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. In these episodes, our brilliant lineup of guests will include healthcare practitioners, voice educators, and other professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to empower you to live your best life. Whether you're a member of the voice community or beyond, your voice is your unique gift. It's time now to share your gift with others, develop a positive mindset and become the best and most authentic version of yourself to create greater impact. Ultimately, you can take charge. It's time for you to live your best life It's time now for A Voice and Beyond. So, without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Many of us enjoy a drink after work. And for me, I love having a drink on the weekends. But at what point does our relationship with alcohol become problematic? Our guest this week on A Voice and Beyond is Andrew Colkin, author of Amanda, A Cautionary Tale of Alcoholism, which speaks to the truth about alcoholism, not only from the perspective of the person who has the addiction, but it also describes the suffering of those around the alcoholic. On February 21st of 2020, Andrew's wife of 25 years, Amanda, passed away from alcoholism. During her nearly two decades of decline, Amanda had attended 7 rehabs, received 4 DUI convictions, and had several accidents. The stigma and the shame attached to the disease Only made her situation more difficult as it drove her into isolation and depression. Andrew describes alcoholism as a health disease, which is no different than cancer or heart disease because alcoholics have no desire to be alcoholics any more than a cancer patient wishes to have cancer. Therefore, he has made it his mission to promote a different perspective on how we observe a struggling alcoholic. He tells us that the shame and embarrassment of the alcoholic needs to be met with empathy, care, and they must know that they have support instead of condemnation and embarrassment. During this interview, Andrew explains the four stages of alcoholism, why some people are more susceptible to succumbing to the disease, and he shares with us his own traumatic and exhausting experiences, not only for himself, but for his son throughout Amanda's alcoholic career. This is a thought-provoking interview with Andrew Colkin. And I can admit that at times it was very triggering for me. So, without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Welcome to A Voice and Beyond. Today, we have Andrew Colkin. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Marissa. It's good. Glad to be here.
0: Yes. Today we are going to talk about something that affects more people than what we realize because a lot of people keep this issue quiet. They don't reveal that they have a problem. They probably don't know they have a problem themselves. And it's probably something that is very significant in the performing arts industry as well. So this this will be very relevant to our community and beyond. So, Andrew, we're going to be talking about alcoholism and I'm going to say that at this point in my life, I have someone that's close to me who I'm very concerned about, who I see is having way too much to drink on a very regular basis, but we'll go into that in a second. At present, you you have a job in insurance, but you also have a coaching program and you're the author of Amanda, A Cautionary Tale of Alcoholism, which speaks the truth about alcoholism, not only for the person who has the addiction but what the journey is like and the suffering of those around the alcoholic.
1: Absolutely. Right. Wow. Yeah, because when someone's an alcoholic, and no one's an alcoholic all by themselves. If you're an alcoholic, your whole family is, and everybody that's around you uh, is suffering with the same issue in one way or the other. And that's why it needs to be talked about, and there's so much shame involved with alcoholism everybody wants to sweep it underneath the rug and not talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. We should be able to understand it as a disease and we need to talk about it more and more and more. It's the only way we're ever going to help people and, and solve this issue.
0: Yes. Okay, let's get straight into the topic of alcoholism and then we're going to talk about your particular story, which is really tragic. So, How do we know if someone is an alcoholic? What are the signs we should be looking out for?
1: Well, consistency is the biggest sign. If someone is consistently drinking on a regular basis and if they're drinking in isolation, that's a a huge, huge red flag. If someone is drinking alone and they don't want anybody to know about it because they already realize subconsciously that they have a problem. The other big red flag that I found with not just my wife, but with a lot of other people is that they hide their alcohol. So when they finish their bottles and cans, rather than throw them out where they can be discovered, they'll hide them under things, underneath the couch, underneath the bed, behind books, in the flower bed. They, they will hide them. It's, it's a very weird thing. And it's hard to conceive of that unless you're involved with someone who's an alcoholic. But it's very common. <laughs> it's very weird to hide all your stuff.
0: Wow. And and the thing is, you don't know exactly how much they're drinking.
1: No, you can never know, you know. And the other thing is, you know, one of the big myths about alcohol is that people think, you know, I only drink beer or I only drink wine. I'm not drinking hard stuff. What well, you know, alcohol is alcohol. It's the, one of the biggest myths. Some people say, well, like my wife, she used to drink Chardonnay by the gallon, and then she switched to beer saying, well, beer's not as bad. It doesn't have as much alcohol content. What difference does it make if you, if you're drinking thirty of them? What difference does it make? A
0: hundred percent.
1: Alcohol's alcohol, no matter what you're drinking.
0: a hundred percent. And that's one of the things that I hear. Oh, but this doesn't have much alcohol in it, so they go ahead and drink double the amount.
1: Right. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not drinking bourbon tonight that has eighty uh, percent by volume. I'm only going to have twenty five beers. It doesn't matter. You, you're still. It's the same thing. Yes. Yeah.
0: Now you you've told me that there are four stages to alcoholism. What are they, and when does it become a boundary violation that someone's just drinking recreationally to that point where they are full on alcoholic?
1: Yeah, this is really the biggest point that I want to do. Is stage one isn't necessarily an alcoholic. You're be you have alcoholic tendencies. It means. Mm-hmm. And usually most people start their alcoholic career between the ages of 13 and 20. So usually it's high school, college age kids is when they begin. You know, some people are introverted or it's a way to socially fit in or to get through their shyness, you know, or to be able to become something that they're not or to be cool or, you know, whatever the reason. That's generally where it starts. And those are the people I want to get to, because if you can. Explain to people what stage one that you're, you know, identify that you're starting a habit, they're not going to get to stage two. And stage three is when you become a chronic alcoholic. And, you know, stage two is basically your life is kind of centered around alcohol. Uh, You have become an alcoholic at this point. You're drinking three, four, five days a week. Your weekend starts on Thursday and you're getting over the hangover the following Wednesday. You know, it's just, it's five o'clock somewhere. That's stage two is when you've created a a very physical dependency on alcohol.
0: Mm -hmm. So that person too is looking for a situation that they can create where they can sit down and have a drink at some stage during the day. For example, let's go out to lunch. It's a beautiful day. Let's go out to lunch. And then the alcohol arrives on the table.
1: Exactly. They make any excuse to find any reason to drink Mm You know, near the end. I mean, just to bring it in, I I used to hate going to dinner or to lunch with my wife because it would take her 45 minutes to decide what to eat. And she would have three glasses of wine before she even decided. It it was really just about going to get something to drink.
0: What about when someone has about a dozen drinks before they've even left the house?
1: Well, that's (laughs) they probably shouldn't be leaving the house at that point because it's just going to be an embarrassment. It's going to be very awkward and very difficult, and it's going to be all about them when you get there.
0: Okay, let's continue. Let's continue. So stage three, this this is going from bad to worse.
1: Yeah, state, stage three, you know, you, your whole life is centered around alcohol. You get up in the morning uh, and you have a glass of something just, you know, in lieu of food, you're drinking every day your your life centers around getting alcohol uh finding it you want to be able to have uh, your alcohol set up for the whole day you know you don't want anybody to interfere with that that's your priority in your life and it's physically uh, uh affecting you you're having a lot of physical problems It can affect your your liver your heart you've gained weight you're having blurry vision. It can affect, it can physically affect your mind.
0: Forgetfulness.
1: The dopamine in your brain is no longer, you're, you're no longer getting the dopamine fixed from alcohol. You're beyond that at this point where you're just drinking alcohol because it's become a chemical dependent.
0: Okay. When, when you talked about the mind, uh, is the person becoming forgetful?
1: Yes. They're becoming forgetful. They're making up stories. Uh-huh. They make up stories that never happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In the later stage three and into stage four, they can have a thing called wet brain, which is really a form of dementia uh, where they're really showing earlier signs of dementia. My wife yes. seemed like she was starting to become, you know,
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: in the state of dementia
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the last couple of years.
0: Can a person go through these stages but present slightly differently because everyone's different.
1: Right. There's there's no cookie cutter. The thing is there's no cookie cutter for any of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because because some people could go through a rehab and maybe they escape it for a few years and then they <laughs> then they relapse. So I mean, th- there's no certain cookie cutter. Generally, stage one is where you want to identify that someone has created an issue. That's that's a habit. It's mm. you know, just creating a habit.
0: That would be really hard to identify because if teenagers are drinking, they're usually doing it behind people's backs. So therefore parents, unless they smell the alcohol, unless they find the empty bottles, unless they know where their children are all the time, they're not going to know.
1: No, they're not, and children will get away with it. And it's not just alcohol, obviously. That leads Mm -hmm. to other things.
0: Yes. Yes. You know, other
1: other serious drugs, but we're, for the sake of our conversation, we're just talking about alcohol. You you can't. As a parent, there's no way you're going to know every minute of every day what what your child's doing. There's no way.
0: And nor can an adult know what another adult is doing. No. And this is where this is so terribly difficult. And it then is. what is the difference like is binge Drinking a form of alcoholism as well, where someone can go all week without a drink, but then the weekend comes and they absolutely hammer the alcohol.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's again, that's that's stage one. Likely, it just depends on how long it's been going on. Mm. You know, if it's been going on for five, six years, then no, you're you, you you've you certainly are beyond alcoholic tendencies. Binge drinking for men is something like eight drinks within three hours. For women, it's more like five or six, and that's considered binge drinking.
0: That's interesting.
1: You know, but sometimes it's, you know, double that. That's just, that's the low end. Mm-hmm. You know, for for mm-hmm. some men, it could be 15 or 20 in a, in a three- or four-hour period.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is also very hard, too, because not only can we, do we not truly know how much someone is drinking, But some people can hide it better than others, and they can hold their liquor better than others as well.
1: Well, absolutely. So That's some of the problem is that there's a lot of calories in alcohol, uh, and so there's going to be a lot of weight gain. Just to me, naturally, you're going to gain a lot of weight. A lot of men have big bellies. My wife was certainly overweight. And as a result, unfortunately, is that you can consume a lot more alcohol if you're heavier. Oh, someone who weighs a yeah. someone who weighs 120 pounds will be drunk after three drinks. Somebody who weighs 250 won't get drunk until
0: ten, okay, or more. I don't yeah. hold my liquor very well. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. No, no, I'm fine with that. I'm happy with that. I'm I'm so fine with that. Right. So what are the lies then that an alcoholic tells themselves? Obviously, they're in denial of their drinking, or are they truly? And what do they say to people who are close to them? Like if someone calls them out and says, you have a drinking problem, what is the usual response to that?
1: Well, the usual, the the, the knee-jerk response from anyone in that position is going to be complete denial. And it's and it's. Well, I always say it's a gaslighting technique, and I've made videos on this. You know, you're the one who has the problem, not me. I don't have the problem. You're the one who has the issue. If you think I'm drinking too much, you know, you, which will drive family members crazy because they're trying to address a real world problem, and their response is to throw back in their face. You're the one with the problem. Mm-hmm. And it's just another technique of denial. And there's a hundred different techniques that you could go over with that. But, you know, I always say denial. My wife was in denial up until they uh, unplugged the machines and they, they kept her alive. You know, you're in denial until you have two choices. You're either going to be in denial or you're going to face the problem head on and you're going to find solutions to a healthier life. Mm. Those are the two choices. You're either going to die with this disease or you're going to find a way to live with it.
0: Mm. And it is a disease and it's something that you're always going to be in some sort of recovery. Right. Now, you were married to an alcoholic and this is where a lot of your experience and your knowledge has come from is from a lived experience and your wife was Amanda and, and the book is named after your wife.
1: Correct, yeah.
0: How long were you married for and when did this start becoming a problem?
1: Well, we were together for 27 years, but we were married for 25, 25 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, she always, you know, she was always kind of a drinker. I mean, she always drank a bottle of wine. Usually at night, she'd have, you know, three or four glasses because we were both, we had our own insurance brokerage. Uh, we'd come home at night. It was a stressful job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also her family was from Canada. Uh, and they're kind of French Canadian, so the whole family all drank white wine, they all drank Chardonnay okay. or, or red wine. And I, I came from an Irish family from New York. None of us drank that. We we had you know my dad had a couple of beers once a month. You know, I I didn't come from a drinking kind of environment. So part of it, I thought it was part of her cultural background. At least that's what I told myself. At the yes,
0: time. yes. So you're in denial as well. <laughs> Well, I, no, I wasn't in denial. I was more—I was I
1: say—I was just woefully ignorant of yes. what was going on. Just woefully ignorant.
0: Yes. <clears throat> yes, and and so when did you realize then, and your alarm bells started to go off, that you thought, "Wow, like we really have a problem here."
1: It took me way too long, it's one of the reasons why I'm kind of passionate about this to help families because. If I was able to address it 10 years before I was, eight, before I finally did, I think Amanda would have had a fighting chance. And families are really the front line to help an alcoholic. I mean, if you truly have people who are around you who care about you, those are the people who, who need to step in. The, the family really needs to step in and help that person and identify that there's a problem. The best way to identify the problem is if it's affecting you. If you're a family member to someone who's think that that's drinking, just look in the mirror and say, "Is this affecting me adversely?" And if it is, well, there's your answer. Okay. If you're stressed, if you're angry, if you're frustrated because mm-hmm. of this problem, there's a problem.
0: Tick 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 tick.
1: If you have animosity, if you're reactionary, you know, if you're, you know, if you're just like, you <laughs> know, angry all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: There's your answer.
0: Yes. But what if the person, what if you speak to the person but they don't want to help themselves, they're not listening, like what point do you go, okay, I've got to walk away from this or where does the crossroad happen? This is making me upset because this is really close to home.
1: I I understand because I I was there too. I think one of the reasons why I stayed because it was culturally Part of my past, my parents were married for 50 years. My grandparents were married for 50 years. I kind of have a Catholic background. Divorce was just never part of my culture. I was on the verge of doing that. Uh, but, you know, for some people, I, I think I stayed way too long. And uh, I think for myself, I, I probably should have broken it off much earlier. And you had you. It, but that's that's a question. For the the individual, there's no one that can answer that particular thing. Mm. But if it's gotten to the point where it's hurting you emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually, maybe it's time, you know. And if you're fantasizing about not having to deal with this anymore, you're fantasizing about what your life would be without this person, there's your answer. It's time, you
0: know. You said earlier, however, that it is up to the family to help. So that is kind of like a contradiction of what you said earlier.
1: No, it's the same thing. If if the family, because there's different, it just depends on where you're at with it. The family needs to step in and do an intervention. We haven't really talked about that yet. If you've done an intervention and the person has gone to rehab a few times and it's still not working, the person is still in denial, the person isn't growing from this experience or wholeheartedly trying to help themselves, then it's time. Because you, you've done everything that you can as a family member or as a loved one. And if you've gone through all those steps and nothing has changed, then it's time.
0: Mm-hmm. I think. What emotions were you going through when you were seeing your wife? I mean, I would imagine yes, there would be anger. You would be angry at times, frustrated, feeling helpless. Did you ever feel any kind of guilt that maybe you were responsible or you weren't doing enough to help?
1: No. (laughs) For me, no, no. I I never felt guilt. I felt like I think I did too much really to help her. Um, Sometimes you have to look in the mirror and think about enabling, Mm -hmm. you know, because there are times when I bought alcohol for her just so that I could have a calm night. And I wouldn't have to deal with a lot of drama, uh, and that's that's a big big factor that families have to deal with. Sometimes you just, yeah, you know, here's uh, you know, here's a bottle of Chardonnay so that I can go relax uh, and do something that I want to tonight without being begged and and hammered and having a big argument over you know because you don't have any alcohol in the house and I've taken it all.
0: Mm. You know, How did she change over that? period of time from the woman that you met over those years what were the changes you saw in her well I
1: originally met her she was you know she's a, a pretty blonde haired girl I mean that's her face there
0: yeah she's beautiful
1: she, she had beautiful blue eyes just just when everybody met her they said, oh my god those blue eyes Mm-hmm. Um, she was a very good top salesperson, very uh, outgoing person. She could light up a room. She could take over a room. You know, she's an incredible salesperson. You just wrap people around her finger. You know, 20 years later, her eye, her bloodshot eyes, uh, her eyes were bloodshot. She had gained 150 pounds. <gasps> wow. She had, she had health issues that were just unbelievable. She had to have her knees replaced, her hips replaced. She had fatty liver. She had a gastric bypass. Oh my gosh! Uh, her stomach ruptured a couple times. That's what eventually killed her, because she had so much fecal matter and stuff inside her body, and she had all this all this stuff going on in there. <laughs> I mean, it's very complicated. But uh, her liver was shot. Her kidneys were shot. You just name it. Mm. She had thyroid issues, and can and brain issues too.
0: Yes. Was she aggressive or nasty towards you?
1: No. She, I think that was part of the problem is that she was a very nice person and she was always apologetic. She was aware of the problems that she that she was causing, but she couldn't stop. Mm. She, she was chemically dependent and didn't have the ability to stop.
0: Was this a cultural thing that created this for her? And is that, or genetic?
1: Yeah, it was it was genetic. Her gra- her grandmother was a raging alcoholic. She was hospitalized many times, and I think she ended up homeless almost uh, in Canada. Her grandmother, you know, I, the, she had other fam- close family members that uh, I thought would have passed before she did, but they're still alive. I, I don't want to mention their names no, or anything. no. Yeah, in her close family,
0: is it usual then? Because I know, yes, I've heard that it can be a genetic problem or a, a trigger
1: well there's a you have a you have a higher susceptibility there are genes in, that you're born with that gives you a higher susceptibility in conjunction with cultural things mm-hmm. but there's also something else usually there's uh, some kind of trauma that might have happened in a person's life mm-hmm. you know amanda had some trauma when she was 16 years old which i think it, i think it set her off on a trajectory that kind of changed her whole life you know, I always say, you know, happy, well-adjusted people do not become alcoholics, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. They might not admit that, but there's usually some kind of trauma that happened in their life.
0: Did you have children? Yeah,
1: we have our son. He just graduated from college.
0: Oh, amazing. How is this impacting on him?
1: Well, <laughs> he's, you know, we're, Griffin, and his son is Griffin. We are very, very close. So I was the parent, mm-hmm. you know, most of his, most of his childhood. I was, it was the two of us really mm-hmm. for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize how much it had affected him. When, when Amanda died, he weighed, he was uh, 19 at the time. He weighed almost 300 pounds himself. He's six foot one. He's big. Yes. And then with a, a year after she passed, he had lost 115 pounds. He was down to 185. And he went to college and he grew up and he got rid of all his baby fat and he just made a 180. And I didn't realize how, you know, emotional, how much emotionally that it had uh, affected him. I had no idea. Mm. I think I was just too close to it.
0: Yes. Well, you were probably just trying to survive. You were just probably just trying to keep your head above water and you were probably parenting her as well.
1: Oh, I was. A, it was a complete uh, child-parent relationship.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: You know, the last few years, you just all you're doing is you're spending all your time trying to protect that person from getting themselves in a harm way, harming themselves or harming others. I mean, the worst thing they can do is get behind the wheel of the car. Mm.
0: Hmm. You know? mm-hmm. What about the rest of the family? Could they see what was going on and? Were they offering you support in any way or were you dealing with this on your own?
1: Yeah, it was pretty much on my own. I didn't really have much. Her family lived within an hour like they lived in Orange County and they lived in San Diego County, but her parents pretty much you know, kept, them, kept themselves out of it. Her, her, her siblings kept themselves out of it. My family was uh, very upset about the whole thing. You know, I'd fly, I'm would i originally from New York. We'd fly to New York. Um, I think the biggest watershed moment as far as myself with Amanda is when my mother died. Mm. Uh, we flew back to New York and she was in the, my mother was in the hospital for about a month and we ended up having to stay at my dad's house for about a month. And yes. every day we, we would go to the hospital. Yeah. And I came home one time and Amanda had cleaned out my dad's entire liquor cabinet and she was passed out in, in my dad's living room. And, and a puddle of urine, you know, I mean, just completely out of, just completely out of, and I'm dealing with my mother dying. And I have this wife who's just completely out of control. So I had to take her and I had to send her back, you know, and it was just all this drama. I couldn't even mourn my mother because I was dealing with such craziness with my wife. And it was just there was it was such narcissistic behavior. It was just such self-absorption that uh, that was the dividing line for me that was it for me we were never the same after that ever
0: that's so interesting that and, and so sad because essentially the time when you needed support she was emotionally unavailable for you because she was so caught up in her own life in in, in her own needs but it seems like to me that it comes a point where you're no longer married to a person, you're married to the alcohol and the addiction.
1: That's really all that's left, is you're married to someone who's a complete chronic alcoholic, stage three alcoholic, where their entire life is alcohol. And I mean, there's so many steps to try to separate that person from the alcohol. You can take away car keys, you can take away bank accounts, Credit cards, you know everything you possibly can, and you know they'll they'll find a way to get it. They'll either invite a friend over. Can you bring a bottle of wine with you? <laughs> mm-hmm. And now there's things like you know DoorDash. You you can call uh, in California. You can call a, a grocery store. and they'll, they'll deliver a case of beer. It's crazy. Yes, crazy.
0: Yes. Did she seek help?
1: Yeah, she went to seven rehabilitation facilities.
0: Oh, did Or did they work for a short time?
1: They would work for a very short time, maybe two, three weeks, and she'd be passed out. I'd come home home and she'd be passed out. The the problem is, and this is the big problem with rehab facilities, I'm sure it's the same in Australia or anywhere. When you go to a rehab facility, it's 30, 60, 90 days, depending on what your insurance covers or how much money you have because they're expensive. But the the key thing is you have to do the follow-up. You have to get an accountability partner. You have to have someone who's kind of acts as a mentor. So if you think you're starting to slip, you have someone to call up Mm. and you have to go to some kind of AA meeting and not necessarily alcoholic, anonymous, but you have to go to some kind of support group that's like that. And you have to do that as often as you need to every day, maybe in the beginning. And that's where it fell off. She never did the, uh, you know, the work. You got to do the work.
0: Yeah, it's it's one thing. Having the counseling session but then you got to do your homework following the session it's not what you do in that 1 hour it's what you do the rest of the week right or in in this case the the 30 90 days however long it is it's then okay when you leave that facility it's about the follow up it's about doing the work that they tell you to do
1: it's about when you go back to your life mm. and then do the real work mm-hmm. now rehab facilities are good because they you know you're around like-minded People are in similar situations as yourself, and you're able to delve into the reason why you drink. And you do, you do a lot of inner, inner searching of, as to why you're in the situation that you're in or why you're drinking. But I mean, it, you know, you're in this ecosystem, <laughs> you're in this, yes. you're in a bubble when you're in a rehab facility. But rehab facilities also help the family because it gives everybody a break. It gives everybody a break Mm, from the
0: disease.
1: I I, I used to put Amanda in a rehab facility so that I could go fly home to New York and see my parents. (sighs) You know, (laughs) that's where I was the last, uh, I'd say from 2015 to 2020. Every year I put her in a rehab facility so I could go see my aging parents.
0: Without having to worry about what she was doing at home
1: oh, there's no way I could leave her. If I left her, she'd be dead. She'd drink herself to death.
0: What happened in the end, Andrew, if you don't mind sharing the story of how she well, passed away?
1: Yeah, how it ended, she, I put her in a in her seventh rehab facility. It was a Saturday, it was January of 2020, and they called me up the next day and said that she had fallen down a flight of stairs and they were very worried about her and they took her to UCLA Medical Center. Well, I was like, I don't care. Just tell me when. I'm like, I don't even care. Whatever. Is she okay? No, they were very worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I didn't even think about it. And Three or four days went by. And about three o'clock in the morning, one uh, uh, LA called me up and said that her heart stopped in the middle of the night. I didn't realize it was that serious. So she was in the hospital for two weeks before I even went to see her. I didn't even want to go see her. Really? And when I went yeah you know, when I went there i I had no idea i mean she she had every machine you could possibly think of she was essentially in a coma at that point uh they did twelve different operations she had uh, they just left her open and they'd go in every couple of days and just clean out all the uh the bacteria and all the mm-hmm. you know whatever was going on in there but eventually they had to call it she went into septic shock and uh her 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 blood pressure was so low that they just had to call it. And it took her about, uh, took her 28 days to die after she fell down a flight of stairs, which, you know, internally just kind of erupted all this.
0: Wow. Yeah. How did you feel at that point? I mean, listening to your story, and I say this with great respect, there must have been a part of you that was relieved. I mean, like Absolutely. it. Incredibly sad, but also relieved, too.
1: Well, like I mean, it's funny because I, I called my son one way after she died, and, she, and he was like, he, did, he cried a little bit, and he goes, oh, well, Dad, at least now you're going to have some relief. I mean, that was his response. Oh, <laughs> he, he didn't even come see her. He, I just I, I just said, Griffin, just stay in college. You don't need to come see your mom. There's nothing you can do anyways. <clears throat> so he never saw her again. The overriding emotion that I had was absolute relief. I was just... There was no set. I was. I didn't think I even thought about missing her for almost a year. I think about a year later I cried. Yes. Just because, you know, she was no longer there. Mm.
0: And how are you doing now?
1: Oh, now I'm fine. I, I mean, I have another relationship. I've been, you know, with another girl for, for over three years now, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: How do you then step into that relationship? Like do you feel that you're free from all the shackles that you had in the past with Amanda and not being a helicopter partner, looking at how much she's drinking, observing behaviors, or do you feel free from all that from your past?
1: I feel free from all that. I think there's a little bit of PTSD when, when mm-hmm. it first happens. Just, just uh, stress, just decompression. You know, mm-hmm. getting over all that stress and that lifestyle. It was, it was hard to. I mean, the weirdest thing I remember, I bought a, uh, about two weeks after she died, I went and bought a 12-pack of beer. And this is something I hadn't been able to do in years. And I put the 12-pack of beer in the refrigerator. When I came home from work, it was still there. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't bought a, I hadn't bought a beer for myself in probably 10 years because I couldn't. There's no way. I couldn't buy any alcohol. Mm. It'd just be gone. Mm-hmm. Yes. That was just the weirdest little thing.
0: Yes. I mean, one you wouldn't want to be going out to dinner or lunch. No. So that you start to become very isolated.
1: Well, see, I I, I have my, my own life. I mean, I'm very much into bodybuilding. Uh, I mean, I used to go to the gym five, six days a week. I did a lot of heavy lifting, which helped me a lot.
0: Yes, mental, mentally. And mentally I do a lot mentally. of reading.
1: And, uh, you know, I used to just uh, on weekends, I used to just uh, kind of go do my own thing near the end. I could leave for a few hours and be okay. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: But but I think weightlifting helped me a lot.
0: Mm, Wow. When that happened in New York, while your mother was in hospital and Amanda drank all the alcohol at your father's place, what did your father say to you? What were family members saying to you? Were they saying, okay, Andrew, this is not a good situation what are you doing? You need to get out of here? Or were they saying to you, you need to do more to help this person? What was the advice, the general advice you were receiving from those around you?
1: Well, you know, I'm very close with my family. So they were very supportive of me. And like anybody, they were kind of reactive. They were very angry with Amanda. So, I cleaned it all up before anybody really found out anyways, but they found out the alcohol was gone, obviously. So, what I did was we went on when we, I just said I had to get her out of the house. So I took her and we went down to Gettysburg, which uh, was a battleground in the Civil War. I used to go there as a kid. Uh, we so I left for about a week while my mother was dying. I just had to get amanda out of the out of the situation. But as far as the family goes, no, they were very supportive of me. They said maybe she should fly home after we came back. And I, I sent her home. I didn't even care. I, I knew it was going to be horrible when I got home, but I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And luckily, my my wife died about, or my, my wife, my mother died about three days after I sent my wife home. So then I was able to follow, you know, about four days after that. mm, mm. But my family was supportive. I mean, by then, they they were well aware of the problem anyways because they had visited me in California and saw it firsthand anyways.
0: Mm. Because that's part of the shame too, isn't it, and the embarrassment. You don't want people to know or to find out because –
1: It just depends on how close you are to the people. You know, I was pretty open with my parents. Her family, just the opposite, and I think that's a big part of the problem. They were very closed – it was shame it was it was to never talk about this no one's ever supposed to te- you know talk about this 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 giant elephant in the family her mm. family mm. definitely
0: how do you suggest as family members we respond to loved ones who are in denial are there some creative ways that we can help them when that person with the problem is absolutely denying or won't listen to anyone else who is concerned about them.
1: Well, there's the, you know you got to there's boundaries that you have to. I think you, we all have to come to to agree upon with ourselves. You know what boundaries? And you know, I used to do things just to give her an illustration. I would find all her bottles that she had hidden in the last couple of weeks, and I would set them on a table and say, "I want you to come here and look at all the. This is all these bottles that you have." consumed in cans that you've consumed in the last few days a lot of times her response was oh they're old they're from last month they're from last year (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and if i go well maybe we should go to a rehab again because i think you have a problem and sometimes she would agree to it that's how i approached it Mm -hmm. is is to get into a rehab
0: Mm
1: -hmm. or you needed to go do more counseling but you have to realize there's only so much a family member can do. All a family member can do is identify it to the person. They can t- explain to them how it's affecting them. But at the end of the day, the alcoholic has to make the decision to get that help. And if they're not willing to 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 get that help, mm. then as family members, you know, especially if it's a husband's. The healthy, healthier spouse has to make the decision whether or not they want to stay in this. Mm-hmm. If you've if you've identified it, <laughs> you've explained how it's affecting you, on and on and on. I mean, for not just once, but probably fifty times, uh, and then you just have to come to the point: what what is your boundary? If if you're miserable as a person, it's not worth it.
0: Mm. What are the things that we as a loved one or as a society need to understand in order to help an alcoholic's recovery?
1: Yeah, I think society needs to have more empathy for an alcoholic and we need to recognize that it's a mental health disease. And I've I've said this before, you know, we we don't ridicule uh, the girl who's bald because she's going through chemotherapy. But we'll ridicule the guy that's fallen down drunk, disheveled, and we'll, you know, we'll throw shame in that direction. When that person is really suffering with a mental health issue and they need they need real world help. We need to recognize that we need to help these people and not ridicule them. That's not helping anyone.
0: Mm.
1: Other than that we're just playing on our own ego and we're looking at that. We're not helping that person.
0: So not blaming and shaming.
1: Right. And more empathy we have to, and it's very difficult to show empathy when you're full of resentment. Mm. It's, a very, <laughs> it's a very difficult to, to feel empathy when you're you know frustrated and angry and resentful. Mm. But we have to do it. We have to mature.
0: Mm. What are the most alarming truths about chronic alcoholism and alcoholics? Is there anything more that we need to know or understand?
1: I think we've talked a lot about, you know, the, mm. the, the main things well, I think th- is that it's a disease and that person's mm. going to have that disease until the day the day they die. It's not a disease that goes away. And a lot of people don't realize that. Also, alcoholics walk amongst us. They're not always the homeless guy in the corner. They mm. could be a teacher. Mm. They could be, you know, <laughs> your friend. They're, they're, they walk amongst us. Uh, mm. And they're people just like we are. Anybody could become an alcoholic potentially, could become yeah. an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. It's not something we need to stop blaming the alcoholic as much and and have a better understanding of where it's coming from.
0: Mm. I was surprised to hear that there are a lot of pilots who are alcoholics, that's, which is really scary.
1: That's funny. One of the last movies, I think it is the last movie I saw with Amanda, was was Flight by Denzel Washington,
0: mm-hmm. which is
1: the story of a commercial pilot was an alcoholic
0: oh my gosh
1: did you ever see that movie
0: no i don't think big, i want to
1: <laughs> it was a big movie well he actually the, the the movie starts is that he's flying the plane mm. and he has a he drinks a couple of bottles of vodka and he throws them in the trash later they find him when the plane crashes but he actually saves the plane because the engines go out even though he was drinking so he, he becomes this big hero and then later they find that he he's the one that had the vodka in the garbage cans, and there's this big hearing, and then he admits that he's an alcoholic, which is, I always said, if Amanda had been able to do that and admit that she was an alcoholic, I think it was her third or fourth DUI, and they gave, her, they gave her 90 days, and I was pleading with the lawyers, could you please give her at least a year? She needs to be in jail for a year. It's the only thing that's going to save her. Uh, and and they wouldn't. They said, no, we can only give her 90. We could give her a year. In fact, she was, should have had a year because it was her third DUI. That's what saved the main character of Denzel Washington because he got a couple of years in jail because he admitted that he was an alcoholic as a commercial pilot. And that's what actually what saved his life. That's, that's separation.
0: Yes, you know things are tough when you actually want your spouse locked up.
1: Well, I knew that's the only thing that was going to save her. Uh.
0: My gosh. With your book, how healing was that for you to write that book? What was the inspiration? Like who were you trying to help through the book?
1: I think I initially <laughs> I had to rewrite the first 100 pages because there was just just anger. I just, I need to get all this anger out. I was mm. so angry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I did, in fact, I I have a a Facebook group and I had a lot of angry things in there. And people said, maybe you shouldn't be writing that. (laughs) Okay, Then I backed off. And I I think for me, it was a, you know, a, a process of healing for me to write the book, definitely. But I'm passionate about helping other people and being able to identify. I think that's what it's all about is being able to identify someone who is an alcoholic and get them help. Before they get in the later stages, especially uh, younger people. How this all started was I I, be, I spoke at uh, Amanda's rehab facility after she passed away. There was a thing called a uh, family weekend, and they asked me to speak. And I told her about you know how they died and what I went through. And then I went to the Betty Ford Clinic and I spoke there. And then I started doing podcasts. And it just kind of grew. It kind of grew organically. Yes. You know, that's how the book kind of started and how the coaching program started because I had so many people asking me all these specific questions. And I realized I had a lot of real-life experience to, to help other people.
0: mm mm-hmm. The book and the coaching program, are they targeted for the person with the drinking problem or for the families of?
1: I think initially they're really targeted for families so that they can identify and and not be as ignorant as I was about what was going on and have a better understanding on how to approach the problem with their loved one and not be so reactive under have a better understanding of their own emotions so that they can approach it uh, in a much more mature uh, much more mature way but with a much better chance of a better outcome. Mm. Rather than just anger, because with every reaction you're going to get the same reaction. If you're just angry at somebody, they're just going to be angry back, mm. and and that's not going to help anybody. So you have to come at it much more ethically
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and talk to people and explain to them how it's affecting them, how it's affecting yourself. As it's the best approach.
0: And with your coaching program, how does that work? Is that like a, say like a. So many week program, or is it a one on one on a per needs basis? How have you structured your program?
1: Yeah, initially, what it is, it's really you're, you're, the first part of it is understanding the, the four different stages of alcoholism and is educating people on what their loved one is going through. Or it could be for an alcoholic too. They, they can go through it and identify their own issues. And then it talks about real world solutions, how to identify with it, what to do. When you do identify someone and I get into the different relationships, husband-wife relationships. The most difficult ones are parent-child relationships, because you can you 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 can walk away from a spouse. You can't walk away from your child. I mean, not normally. Mm -hmm. I talk a lot about tough love too. Sometimes you gotta (laughs) you gotta show tough love to your kids. You can't enable them. You can't enable the alcoholic. And if you are enabling them to identify, you know, that process. Uh, understanding your own emotions. There, there's a lot of there, there's six different sections, and a lot of it goes over, uh, you know, what kind of help you can get. Uh, understanding rehab facilities, how to set up an intervention, understand the intervention process, when you're when you're intervening with a loved one, and all the very very detailed specific things that need to be set up and said, and that conversation Mm. and the people that need to participate you know things things like this Mm -hmm. and and there's a lot of alternative group therapies understanding the importance of a an accountability partner you know you need somebody that that's kind of in your same position but can can hold your hand if you're having a weak moment things like that are very are just vital to uh to the success of sobriety which is your ultimate goal
0: just with that intervention process, who do you suggest is in that process? Usually
1: everybody. Everybody that is affecting. If you you know, if you have a family, it would be the the mother-father, it would be the the siblings, possibly depending on the age of you know, the, the age of everybody it should be their spouses, older children, anybody that's affecting, anybody that's a part of their life. It mm-hmm. could be a good friend. Mm-hmm be you know important people in your life anybody that's in in their circle that it's affected mm-hmm. should have some say in how it's affecting them and relay how how the disease has affected them is either a important family member or is it or as a friend
0: mm-hmm. so that's part of the intervention process is to say this is how it is impacting me
1: that's how it's impacting us and this is and that we are worried about you, then there's, after you've done that, then there's the ultimative period. Like, if you don't (laughs) go to the rehab facility, we are no longer going to provide you with a place to live. We're not going to provide you with money. We're not going to provide you with rides to where you want to go. You're not going to have food. It's the end of the road. You're either going to do this or you're on your own, Mm
0: -hmm. and you have
1: to get to that point.
0: So interesting. Interesting. So interesting. Is there anything else that you would like to add to this interview as we start to wind up?
1: I always say the the biggest thing is with alcoholism is you got to find happiness (laughs) and you have to replace alcohol with positive things in your life. If you're struggling with alcohol, maybe take a walk, go to the gym, read a book, Your relationships in your life, maybe build your relationships that are in your life, make them better or or, or put more effort into your relationships. Find something positive that you can do in your life to replace the alcohol. So instead of reaching for a bottle of wine or beer or whatever you're drinking, do, do a different activity. And every day is a struggle. But if you make it one day, you can make it two. And if you can make it two, you can make it four. If you make it four, you can make it six. And it's, it's, you really need to break it down in that great a detail.
0: Can anyone at any stage in those four stages of alcoholism do that without professional help?
1: No, th- th- we're talking about stage, stage one, stage two, when you're creating habits, uh, when you're not completely chemical dependent, but you are showing alcoholic signs, Stage three, when you're and and well, stage I didn't even talk about stage four. Stage four, you're basically dead. It's like stage four cancer. I mean, you're 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 drinking to die. It's like leaving lost the character and leaving Las Vegas. You're you're trying to kill yourself essentially.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I saw that movie.
1: Yeah, that's that's stage four. You you just want to die. <laughs> you don't yes. care about anything or anyone. You just you want to die.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: But stage three, you can, you know, stage four, you've got about, just like cancer, you got about a 5% chance of, of survival. Stage three, you know, 10, 15% chance. But those people need to go to rehab, and then they, those are the type of people that need to do all the accountability stuff, the accountability partner. They need to do the follow-up. They need to go to group counseling almost on a regular basis if they have any chance of survival.
0: Okay. Yeah. So we're going to wrap this up now. Sure. Is there any further advice you'd like to give our listeners?
1: You know, just have a, a happy, healthy life. It's worth it. You know, it's, sobriety is worth it, but life is worth living. You've only got one life. Mm. Why spend it at the bottom of a bottle of something? You know, it's, it's uh, you can still have a happy life and uh, make that your goal. And uh, families need to be able to have a happy life too.
0: Yes, yes.
1: That's that's the ultimate goal.
0: Yes, Andrew, we're going to share the links to all your work, your book, your coaching program, to you, your social media, because I believe you have some TikToks that have gone viral. There's been over a million views to some of those those little videos.
1: TikTok and YouTube. Some of YouTube's have been a hundred thousand. I have some TikToks that done a I have one that's nine hundred and fifty-eight million five nine hundred and fifty-eight
0: thousand. <laughs> what was that one on?
1: It was uh, the fourth stage of alcoholism because it's brutal. I think people are just interested in the gory details. Oh, you know, unfortunately.
0: Okay. okay. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, <laughs> Andrew, I really would love to thank you so much for your honesty and for sharing and your willingness to share your story. It's, it's one that's very tragic, and I wish you all the very best with your work and go forth and spread the word and, and do the work that you're doing to help others. It's, it's brilliant. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time.
0: No, thank you, and good luck with everything. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Voice and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed it, as now is an important time for you to invest in your own self care, personal growth, and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up feeling empowered and ready to live your best life. If you know someone who will also be inspired by this episode, please be sure to copy and paste the link and share it with them or share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. I promise you I am committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one every week. And if you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcast right now. I would also love to know what it is that you most enjoyed about this episode and what was your biggest takeaway. Please take care and I look forward to your company next time on the next episode of A Voice and Beyond.